Hey, before we get started, I want to remind you that Truce is listener-supported. If you want to be a part of this one-of-a-kind show that asks big questions in an approachable way, become a patron. For just $5 a month, you can help me tell big stories like this upcoming season on the history of fundamentalism. And you'll get access to bonus materials. That's all at patreon.com slash trucepodcast. That's patreon.com slash trucepodcast. Hey everyone, I've got some exciting news. We've finally reached the point where I think that together we can fully fund truce. That means more in-depth episodes for you, more engagement with the audience, and a healthier work schedule for me. I could finally stop driving a school bus. Our goal is $40,000. Now, that sounds crazy, but hear me out. If giving continues at its current rate, we're already 40% there. That's right, at our current rate, we're already 40% to fully funding Truce, and we're just getting started. And if we crush this goal and raise some extra, then maybe health insurance, hiring other producers, and I could even do some much-needed advertising. You can give to Truce via Venmo at at Truce Podcast on PayPal, through the mail, or via Patreon. All the instructions are at trucepodcast.com slash donate. I've also got a progress meter on our homepage so you can follow our progress as we go. Right now, only about 2-3% to of people who listen ever give to help out. Now, not all of us want to give to something if it's not going to work. So, I've set up a Google form on the website at trucepodcast.com if you want to pledge. If we meet our goal, I'll give this much. That kind of thing. You don't have to enter a credit card or anything like that. Just your name and email and how much you'd like to pledge. Finally, I'm thinking about organizing a speaking tour. Taking truce on the road. If you'd like to sponsor a speaking engagement at your church or club, fill out the bottom of the pledge form and I'll be in touch. I know we don't like talking about money in Christianity, but this could be huge. I've been doing this show for about five years with another full-time job, and it's getting to be an awful lot to manage. I think it's time we really go for this. Truce is unlike anything else on the market. I'm not choosing to do episodes based on how good they make my side look or to please one wealthy donor. Nor am I bashing the church or trolling the internet to see what stories will shock you. This is about discovering the backstory of how we got to where we are today so we can understand our modern moment and do better. The podcasting market is saturated with big corporations. Little indies like me need your help. Let's send a message to the podcasting world that Christian podcasting can be fun and high quality. Asking big questions, nonpartisan. Visit trucepodcast.com for more information. And God willing, I'll be updating you about our progress as we go. Okay, here's the show. This episode is part of a long series on the rise of Christian fundamentalism up through the Scopes Monkey Trial. This episode can stand on its own, but it'll make a lot more sense if you go back and start at the beginning of Season 5. Also, this episode gets into the weeds on theology. I wrestled for a long time on whether or not to do this episode, so feel free to skip it if you need to. Let's say you have a famous ship. It comes in from doing, I don't know, whatever, exploring the Arctic, fighting a war, or 
floating people around an alligator park. It doesn't matter. You want to preserve this thing for historic purposes in a museum. You know, you can't just plunk this thing down and let people walk around it. You've got to do some kind of upkeep, right? What if, say, one of the planks is rotten? It creates a safety hazard. So you replace that one plank. And maybe it happens more than once. Every now and then you've got to pry up one of the old boards and plunk in a shiny new one. A simple fix. But across years, you might need to do this again. And again. And again. Until, eventually, the whole thing has to be switched out one piece at a time. The question? Is this still the same ship? It's not the same physical materials. Where is the line where it goes from being one thing to something entirely different? Is it when you replace the first board? Or the 90th? Or the 500th? This brain buster is known as the Ship of Theseus. And it's super old, going back at least to Pluto or Plutarch. And the internet is full of all kinds of variations on this paradox. I bring you this thought experiment as a way to think about Christianity. Instead of a ship, you've got a whole faith. But maybe we don't like certain parts. And so we pull away just one bit. Maybe we don't like the stuff about us being sinners. So we snip that part off. Is this thing still Christianity? Or what if Jesus didn't die for your sins, but lived as a moral example? Is that still Christianity? I mean, we're just removing one bit, one little plank at a time. At what point does it go from being this ancient faith to something new? A new religion or an academic exercise? This gets to the heart of the fundamentalist-modernist conflict. Where is that line? In the late 1800s and early 1900s, modernist philosophy spread quickly in big-name seminaries and famous pulpits like wildfire. It started as a rebellion against Calvinist theology and soon started prying up boards all over the place, causing future fundamentalists to ask, is modernism Christianity, or is it something else entirely? You're listening to the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. I'm Chris Starin, and this is Truce. We've talked at length about the social gospel in recent weeks, and we read the book In His Steps because it pretty well encapsulates that movement. It emphasized the good works associated with Christianity, while often downplaying the roles of evangelism, sin, forgiveness, the authority of the Bible, and Jesus' divinity. Now, I'm guessing you're wondering why I've spent so much time on this. Well, according to George Marsden, author of Fundamentalism and American Culture, it was this movement, the social gospel, that pushed fundamentalists over the edge. We need to take one more look at modernism and the social gospel. 
Because if we don't understand how it threatened Orthodox Christianity, then fundamentalists will look one-dimensional, you know, like a bunch of meanies. So let's explore one of the main thinkers of the social gospel. Walter Rauschenbusch was born in 1861 in upstate New York. His education was split between two places. And if you've really been paying attention this season, you might be able to guess where a leader of a theologically liberal movement went to school. Yes, here in the United States, but also in Germany, the home of modernist theology that attempted to remove the miraculous from the Bible. He accepted a call to minister at New York's notoriously poor neighborhood of Hell's Kitchen. It was there that his conviction really took shape. He saw the cold-heartedness of Christians in his era toward the poor, and did his level best to call us to step up and help those in tough situations. Poor people, those under dangerous working conditions. Like, really good stuff. WWJD stuff. There is a parallel between his own populist beliefs and those of William Jennings Bryan. He wrote this about the role of big corporations. They have gained control of legislation, courts, police, military, church, property, religion, and have altered the constitution of nations in order to make things easy for the tick class. The laws, institutions, doctrines, literature, art, and manners which these ruling classes have secreted have been social means of infection which have bred new evils for generations. Rauschenbusch took a bunch of his ideas and distilled them into a best-selling book, Christianity and the Social Crisis. By the way, if you like, you can read it for free on Google Books. I'll have a link to the version I used in your show notes, along with the corresponding page numbers for each point, in case you want to check my work. Rauschenbusch had these big, huge, helpful ideas, right? Let's go make the world a better place. The thing is, he went about expressing them using modernist theology. That branch of theology born in Germany that removed miracles, the resurrection, and much of the writings of Moses and the Apostle Paul. Now, if you were to get the preachers from the beginning of the season, your Jonathan Edwards, your circuit riders, into a room and say to them, what must I do to be saved? They would say something like this. This, by the way, in the interest of full disclosure, is what I believe. That all of us are sinners. That the punishment for sin is death. You, me, Mother Teresa, everyone, we've all sinned. But God sent his son to die in our place as a sacrifice. If we follow him, put our faith in Jesus, we're saved. And that free gift is open to anyone who will believe. Now, that's not fundamentalism. That's just a basic evangelical gospel presentation. Now, if you believe, as I do, that that gospel message is the core of our faith, the thing most precious to us, When someone comes along and wants to trim some pieces out, it can feel like a threat. Which brings me back to Rauschenbusch's book. He makes some really big sweeping pronouncements. It was his belief that Judaism, what would become Christianity, was created not during the time of Jacob or Moses, but by the prophets of the Old Testament. This is an actor reading from the book. Modern study has shown that they were the real makers of the unique religious life of Israel. Just for context, the way the Bible is organized, you've gone through over half the pages before you get to the prophets he's referring to. A theologically conservative evangelical 
would say that this Christianity thing is about a relationship between God and humanity. Rauschenbusch argued something a little different. The fundamental conviction of the prophets, which distinguished them from the ordinate religious life of their day, was the conviction that God demands righteousness and nothing but righteousness. A theological conservative would be cool with the righteousness part, right? But to say that it's all that God is interested in removes the relationship, the trust in Jesus, and a few other things. Do you see the gap widening between the two views? Theologically conservative Christians would say that God set up a system of sacrifices in the Old Testament. Now, you can read it right there in the books of Moses. In those books, the first five, God is really specific about how each animal is to be sacrificed and for which sins. But Rauschenbusch, theological liberal, did not see the books of Moses as authoritative. So they're easy for him to dismiss. The prophets insisted on a right life as the true worship of God. They brushed sacrificial ritual aside altogether as trifling compared with righteousness. Nay, as a harmful substitute and hindrance for ethical religion. The theological conservative would balk at this. God did tell them that he wanted obedience over sacrifice, but it was also him who told them to sacrifice in the first place in the books of Moses and to do it in a specific way. Rauschenbusch flips that on page six. Amos and Jeremiah even tried to cut away the foundation of antiquity on which the sacrificial system rested, by denying that God had commanded sacrifices at all, obedience was all that he had required. See what he did there? We're six pages in, and he's undercut the validity of the first five books of the Bible. He just said that God never told them to do the sacrifices. You could only argue that if you don't believe the books of Moses, because that's where God commands them to do sacrifices. Rauschenbusch says it's all about morality, but not my morality or yours, our morality. We have seen that the prophets demanded right moral conduct as the sole test and fruit of religion, and that the morality which they had in mind was not the private morality of detached pious souls, but the social morality of the nation. God, in his idea, is concerned with social ills over, say, whether or not I tell a lie or have a lustful thought. God is all about the collective. Do you see the difference between what theologically conservative and liberal people might believe? Theologically conservative Christians would actually see Jesus himself as the fulfillment of the sacrificial system. Jesus wasn't against the sacrifices. He was the sacrifice. Rauschenbusch believed Jesus simply rejected the system. What's more, theologically conservative Christians trust that Jesus' words in the New Testament were recorded accurately. But Walter called that into question. This is from page 62. Unless we assume an absolute divine prevention of any such change, we must allow that it is wholly probable that the church which told and retold the sayings of Jesus insensibly molded them by its own ideas and hopes. Now, I don't want us to get weighed down here, so let me quickly summarize a few other things Rauschenbusch said, like that the Bible portrayed wealth as evil. In Jeremiah and in the prophetic Psalms, the poor as a class are made identical with the meek and godly, and rich and wicked are almost synonymous terms. You might remember that from In His Steps. He also claimed that the early Jewish people distributed land in a communistic way, page 14. 
that John the Baptist and Jesus both wanted to restore theocracy to Israel, page 53. He spoke up against bad working conditions and the desire of industry to wear a man out and discard him, page 370. Today, we'd probably be likely to jump to the conclusion that Rauschenbusch was a socialist. And we would be right. He said, Socialism is the ultimate and logical outcome of the labor movement. When the entire working class throughout the industrial nations is viewed in a large way, the progress of socialism gives an impression of resistless and elemental power. You can see how socialism got tied to liberal theology, right? Writers like Rauschenbusch, the main theologian of the social gospel, clearly connected the two. Though he was not the only one. Which, of course, then pitted conservative theology not just against modernism, but also against socialism, which you can learn more about in season three. To recap, there was a growing chasm between the two theologies, the conservative evangelical one and the liberal modernist one. This chasm is important. Evangelical conservatives looked at the social gospel like they would at Theseus's ship. A few boards have been replaced. No, a lot of boards have been replaced. Is this thing still Christianity? Or is it something else? And how should we react to it? After the break, a story from my own life that will help us answer that question and reveal just how I dressed as a teenager. Stay tuned. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. Welcome back to Truce, and now that we're here, let's go back to the year 1999. I was in high school, a theater kid, wearing unbuttoned flannels over t-shirts, hair parted down the middle, back when I still had hair, and my parents wanted to buy all of us kids something nice to wear to church, like a matching family outfit, something that we could take with us and wear maybe for the rest of our professional lives. They got us all trench coats. It was actually a really nice coat, high quality, but I was really embarrassed to wear mine. Now, that may mean nothing to younger listeners. But remember, this was 1999, the year of the Columbine mass shootings outside of a high school near Denver, Colorado, something the perpetrators did while wearing trench coats. Understandably, I rarely took mine out of the hall closet. I didn't want people to think I approved of what happened on that terrible day. My parents came from a place of love. They bought us these really nice gifts. But because the style of the coat was associated with an unspeakable tragedy, I didn't want to wear it. I mean, 
Would you? We do this kind of thing all the time as humans. Because something is associated with something bad, we reject it, even if the thing itself is not wrong. There's nothing immoral about a long coat, but the social context of the time made it really awkward to wear one. That is kind of what happened with certain kinds of good deeds in the early 1900s, why theological conservatives distanced themselves from social involvement. Social gospelers like Walter Rauschenbusch advocated for amazing things, helping workers, ending child labor, enhancing the historic context of the Bible. But because it was associated with socialism and modernist theology, thanks in no small part to Rauschenbusch, fundamentalists looked at it like I looked at that trench coat, with horror. Theologically conservative Christians went the other way, in a movement called the Great Reversal. It was roughly between 1900 and 1930, when conservatives decided to distance themselves from such public displays of social change. George Marsden, who I featured in earlier episodes this season, points to the backlash against the social gospel as the main reason. Now, this is a big deal. Soon, theological conservatives would tie themselves to anti-communist campaigns, to an intense focus on individual actions, and a love of capitalism. Partially because theological liberals were going in the opposite direction. Did the fundamentalists overreact by rejecting certain forms of social progress? Absolutely, because they literally went out and tried to convince people through things like the Schofield Reference Bible that the world is getting worse, so why bother trying to improve it? I mean, classic overreaction. But too often, the story stops there. When I read criticism of Christianity on Twitter, I often see people blaming fundamentalism. At least some of that blame should be laid at the feet of modernist theology as well. Here's an interesting hypothetical, a sort of thought experiment. If modernist theologians had simply realized that the Theseus' ship that they'd built was no longer Orthodox Christianity and called their new religion or academic study or whatever by a different name, would the Great Reversal have happened? Is it possible that would-be fundamentalists would still be socially involved if it hadn't been for guys like Rauschenbusch? Without modernism, there would have been no fundamentalism. But by taking the name of Christianity for something that is clearly very different, they not only swung the pendulum far, but caused fundamentalists to go even further in the opposite direction. Because now, just before World War I, societal programs were so associated with socialism and modernism that they became toxic. Like a finely crafted coat that was worn to commit atrocities, it became difficult to put on the outfit of the socially conscious without being mistaken for a modernist. Conservative Christians saw modernism as heresy, something that looked like Christianity, but removed all of the power and the miraculous. Many of us see fundamentalism today as a dark force, but it was birthed because they saw the spread of heresy, which really was taking over seminaries and pulpits, and they overreacted. Again, one of the great struggles of the Christian life is to both love the Lord and love our neighbor. We're often really good at one or the other. 
We read God's word to see what he says about himself. Or we try to help our fellow humans. For some reason, we struggle to do both. Walter Rauschenbusch and those like him undeniably tried to help the less fortunate. Undeniably. They loved their neighbors. But by removing the parts of the Bible they didn't like, they made it impossible for others to join them in bettering society. We've gotten really good at picking on fundamentalists in popular culture for our present ills, and for good reason. But we've let the modernists off the hook. And that's a shame, because at some point, pulling up board after board without putting a new one in, you can sink the ship you're trying to save. As I said at the top of the show, you can check my work on Christianity and the Social Crisis if you like. The citations are in your show notes. Truce is listener-supported. This show is basically just me, and I'm trying to juggle this and a full-time job. If you'd like to hear more interesting stories like this one, consider becoming a patron. You'll be helping me make this crazy project, and you'll gain some cool bonus features. Visit patreon.com slash trucepodcast for more information, or you can give via PayPal, check, or Venmo at trucepodcast.com slash donate. Email me your thoughts at trucepodcast at yahoo.com. Thanks to my friend Jerry Dugan of the Beyond the Rock podcast for his vocal help today. Thanks also to my brother Nick Starin for listening to me tell and retell this story. I'm also indebted to my friend Roy Browning for his help hosting the website. We've been friends for something like 25 years, and he's an incredible blessing. Remember to rate and review the show on your podcasting app helps people find this project. Truce is a production of Truce Media, LLC. I'm Chris Starin, and this is Truce. This episode is brought to you by The Compelled Podcast. What would you do if you came face-to-face with a murderer sent to kill you for being a Christian? For Virginia Prodan, that question isn't hypothetical. Virginia was a small, petite attorney defending Christians in court in communist Romania. And she was really good. So good, in fact, she caught the attention of the communist regime. One day, a tall, muscular man walked into her office, closed the door, and pulled out a gun. He barked, Shut up. Sit down. I'm here to kill you. Virginia was face-to-face with a trained assassin. What happened next would surprise both of them. Listen to Virginia's entire story on the Compelled Podcast, where they find incredible true-life stories of God working through the lives of normal people. Virginia is on episode number 31, which is titled, He Came to Kill Me. Listen on your podcasting app or at compelledpodcast.com.